Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Michael Staten of Learn and John Danner of Dunce. Uh, John, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. Great to have you both. This is our first dedicated episode, uh, totally on on ed tech. John, I, I want to start with a question for you. Uh, looking back, you know, it's it's 2020 now. Uh, you recently wrote a blog post about the three different waves of of ed tech. I'm curious for both of you, but we'll start with you, John, to sort of put ed tech in perspective over the last couple decades. How how have VCs viewed the space? How how has the space performed, and, and how has the space uh, evolved? Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you if you look at EdTech over the last 20 years, right, EdTech started with a bunch of technology that you could put in schools to try to make existing schools better. So it was like math practice and, you know, uh, student information systems and stuff like that. And uh, I actually think probably on the margins, they did some good, um, you know, help schools be better organized, maybe some students practice a little bit more, but more or less, like it was pretty incremental. Now there are examples and I bet Michael has one or two of like more interesting outcomes from that. But I would say in general, the venture community was pretty ho-hum about that. You know, it's like, great, you're selling to school. Schools are really difficult to sell to. They spend a very tiny amount of their overall budget on this stuff. And like, let's figure out something better to do than this. So that was kind of the first wave. And that lasted a really long time, probably, you know, Arguably, like sometime around the time that Apple II showed up, probably people tried to started to sell things in the school. So for like 20, 30 years, there was uh, that world. But I, I would say the beginning of the next wave was kind of Khan Academy, where people said, gosh, I could just use this Internet thing and like get right to students and teach them something. And, you know, Sal Khan kind of had this vision of like, I could be the world's math teacher and he did it. And that spawned. Coursera, Udacity, Udemy, and a lot of others who were like, hey, let's just go direct to consumer and try to teach people things. And they were great. Um, and, and really, if you talk to all the people in that wave, it was about access and giving people access to education. So especially for people who were, you know, in remote areas or just didn't have any other way that they were going to physically show up at a school, they were pretty incredible things. So like the MOOCs where you'd see 100,000 people taking a computer science class at Stanford, that was amazing. For me as an educator, I was I was running schools at the time. I was not blown away by that because it didn't fit my model of how people actually learn. You know, so my model is that people learn by doing. Um, you got to get in there. It's got to be interactive. Like you try something, it doesn't work. Somebody who knows a little bit more than you gives you a push and like that's how learning really happens. And so. I wasn't super excited about that second wave. When I really got excited was kind of the third wave of like 
live interactive services, Lambda School, probably the the poster child for that. But I have a dozen investments in companies that do some version of live interactive out school, junior learning, people that are like, you know, the teacher is there, the students are there, and they're all working together. That's what I feel like is actually pretty interesting right now. And in fact, I was talking to a couple of India investors this morning, and in India, the same thing happened where there were these products like Baiju's and Topper that got very large as kind of test prep products, but they were asynchronous. Like if you could self-study and learn on your own, that was awesome, but that was it. And then came along these kind of new services like Unacademy and Vedantu that were really about like, okay, here's a teacher. They're going to teach a large group of students at once. It's going to be interactive. You can ask questions. I would call it lightly interactive, but to me, that's, that's interesting. That's, that feels like it's got the human connection. Yeah. And, and what's the why now for that third wave? Is it technology? Is it regulation? Is it culture? What's, what's the why now that's made, made it so exciting? Yeah, I, I think the why now for that wave really has to do with the tools. I mean, even when I was doing my third company, which was a real-time math tutoring company, we had to roll everything our, uh, our, ourselves. So we basically had to build, you know, this kind of video and audio synchronous platform on top of a web browser using, you know, Twilio and other tools. And it was a pain. And now when I look at like what Lambda did, like if you ask Austin, how did you stand up kind of your first version of Lambda? They literally just had a bunch of students on Zoom and Slack and they just did their thing. And I just think while it sounds silly that that kind of the tools would drive so much of this, I actually think that was a huge driver because it lowered the barrier to founders just trying to do live stuff in a big way. Yeah. Michael, you've been doing this for, for a very long time. What is, and so you've seen the diff- different waves. What would you edit or add to that characterization of how uh, the space has evolved or how, how VCs have looked at the space in the last couple of decades? Sure. Well, uh, I mean, the the first thing that's really clear to us at Learn Capital is when we got started in 2009, uh, Crunchbase had 80 funded ed tech companies, and and now they register over 4,000. There's a, a, a data gathering group that's a little bit like of a, a CB Insights slash Crunchbase uh, for ed tech in specific called Holon IQ, and they say that they have over 15,000 ed tech companies in their database. And so we've kind of gone from a world of just, you know, not that many innovators with access to funding and, and real technology shops to uh, thousands and thousands that uh, of, you know, I guess if you want to look at it from a super macro lens, you'd call them experiments, right? So suddenly we have like all these experiments, all these innovations that that are in market and are, are trying to get traction, obviously to varying degrees of success. But we have so many different opportunities for for innovators and entrepreneurs to uh, to get going. And then from a venture capitalist perspective, you go from a world where, you know, you you kind of have to feel like you've got to seed your own garden. I mean, the first three investments that Learn Capital made were, frankly, a lot more incubatorial than they were uh, just straight up seed and series A investments. Uh, to ones where, you know, with a, with our next fund, Fund 4, we're actually looking at like, okay, well, how do we sit back and, and really just let the best Series A companies come forward and then go big on those? So that's probably the first thing I would add. 
You know, in terms of version 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, I would probably just add that uh, one of the things that we've been tracking for some time, we call cloud-powered schools, uh, which I know John John understands intimately. Um, But essentially, people that are building school systems from the ground up that are enabled by technology. So uh, one of our first investments was a company called Bridge International Academies, uh, which is building a technology system to to basically operate low cost schools at scale and deliver instruction with consistent consistently uh, or consistent quality at scale, uh, starting in East Africa. And they're now serving you know over three hundred fifty thousand students real time. It's taken ten years to get there, but they've seen inflection points where you know governments are now inviting them to come take over the whole school system for, for various urban areas and, and pretty much all the rural areas where governments can't, can't bring school with consistent quality in rural areas around the world in low income settings. Um, and they're doing it consistently for between six and $7 a month per student. And, and bridge is really like one of six investments we've made where Different organizations are trying to reinvent school from scratch, assuming that you can have a whole new a whole new set of reality parameters if you have the right technology, the right infrastructure, the right data points, the right dashboarding, uh, and and that that is happening and it's happening very very quickly, uh, and we're we're very excited about that thesis. Um, uh, obviously, John touched on. Um, the new importance of live online. What If I had to do a phase one, phase two, phase three of educational innovation, I would say that for a really long time, asynchronous tools were making it super, super convenient for everyone. Uh, so they could like kind of like log in whenever they wanted, get their assignments done whenever they wanted. Um, this was a varying degrees of quality because frankly, the, the individuals that were participating had varying degrees of uh, participation and student execution. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was a part of with, with Dev Bootcamp, and John alluded to this with, with uh, Lambda, is a, a lot of learners, it turns out, if, if they can learn on their own time and at their own pace, they still want to quit their jobs and learn as fast as possible. And so you had this rise of essentially immersive learning and these immersive programs where if I can go at my own speed, I want to go full speed. And uh, these tools were often asynchronous. People would do them together in cohorts, but they were still participating in asynchronous instructional methodologies on a mastery and competency-based methodology. And then then what we've seen more recently with the rise of VIP Kid and Varsity Tutor and our own portfolio, and John mentioned a few others, uh, OutSchool being one, which we were a seed investor of, uh, is this ri- rise of synchronous online real-time, which did require uh, you know, a technology infrastructure that was plug-and-play for people to do uh, live-streaming video to, for people to participate real-time in not just, not just the actual synchronous video, but the, the tools around that that make that instruction effective. So that's been that's been kind of the most recent super wave, and uh, that all three of these waves are still playing themselves out in all sorts of surprising ways. 
and and John, uh, you know, at Dunce and Learn and and several of our other peers are watching this real time and happy to pounce on things that are that look effective. Totally. So I want to go deep into a number of things we've already talked to. We've talked about live online, cloud, cloud power schools. Uh, you know, we talked about higher ed, uh, vocational. Um, but before we do, I, I first want to get out uh, the, just all the, the categories you guys are currently looking or, or the thesis you have. We just, let's just put them on the table so that we can then go, go deeper sort of one by one. Are there things that we haven't mentioned, uh, Michael or John, that you're particularly excited about as well that we'll, we'll go deeper on in this podcast? Well, I, I would say also that, yeah, a lot of innovation was pointed towards K-12 and higher ed and making what what those institutions are doing, you know, more effective or more data driven or giving people better decision support tools, et cetera. In, in the past, uh, you know, let's call it eight years, uh, we've seen a lot of rise in, in consumer demand for upskilling and corporate demand for upskilling. All you have to do is look at the newspaper and read like the rise of AI and kind of the destruction of middle management and, you know, Basically, 30% of all people that have jobs need to be existentially worried about their job and, and how they fit into a reshaped economy post-technology. So upskilling has, from, from our perspective, almost taken over uh, the existing education market in terms of just the, the, the speed to scale. So if you look at companies like Udemy and Coursera, uh, which are in our portfolio, they're they're really demonstrating that the need of people that are that are at their computers at work can log in are looking for ways to upskill either because they're trying to accomplish a project within within their own job that they need to upskill in order to complete the project. Um, they're looking for immediate promotions or they're looking uh, for their next opportunity out uh, once once they want to do that right they're they're looking to kind of reposition themselves in the in the global economy and and that's really taken over and become a major investment thesis for us over the past eight years totally uh, john let, let's get into k-12 uh, is it ever going to improve i mean you you started r- r- rocket ship i mean you, you've seen it up close is it ever going to improve and w- what do we need uh, what can be built there uh well i i would just say my thesis which is probably a little controversial, which is, I don't think the existing system is ever going to move as quickly and as personally as you would need to kind of adapt to the world at the pace that's currently changing. Uh, I feel like the biggest problem with K-12 is it's a system that was built assuming that the outcomes you wanted to produce were really clear, and then you could uh, kind of harness massive scale to train lots and lots of students on those things, very kind of factory model. Um, And the problem is the, you know, the goal keeps changing, you know, and so I think both in K-12 and in higher ed, one of the big problems is you've got these systems that were just built to not change in a world that's changing extremely rapidly. So my own thesis is actually what's going to happen is um, a whole bunch of entrepreneurs are going to attempt to redefine what K-12 or what higher ed looks like, um, most of which will fail miserably, but a few of which will end up building things <laughs> that take over the system. My, Michael, you don't agree. No, 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 no. I, I do agree. I just I just enjoyed the uh, most of which will fail miserably part. <laughs> um, 
No, no, I, John and I have jammed on this before. Uh, I also agree that the pace of change in K-12 in particular is not going to be satisfactory for most parents. Both John and I have looked at a number of different companies that are addressing what is now called the homeschooling market, uh, which I would like to redefine on this podcast right now as the co-learning market. We're co-working, we're co-living, we're co-parenting. Why aren't we co-learning? I like it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, actually, this coronavirus might actually be the initial catalyst to make this real because suddenly a lot of parents are going to be are, are going to have kids that are at home. When you look at the public school conversation, basically, since a report that was issued in 1980 called uh, Why Aren't Our Schools Good Enough? What was it called? A Nation at Risk. That's what it's called. A Nation at Risk. Sorry. So there was a report that was uh, delivered in 1980 called A Nation at Risk that essentially said our public schools are failing us as a nation. What are we going to do about it? And uh, it's 40 years later. And I actually think that we've made negative progress, not positive progress. Um, the, the standardized test movement uh, has in some ways been good because now we have data where we didn't have any at all before. But the unintended consequences of the standardized test movement has essentially been the only policy we have at our disposal is to minimize the variation in the performance of teachers, like, and try to, like, normalize teachers down to, like, the lowest common denominator. So now you don't have extraordinary teachers in extraordinary classrooms. You just have, like, the lowest common denominator across the curriculum delivered consistently in order to perform on tests. And that's which, not... Which we know, which we know, right? Like if you put it back in the startup context, if you've got a small problem, you can make that kind of incremental change. But if you have a big problem, it doesn't work. You can't increment your way to a step function improvement. And But as Michael says, that's the one tool that they've got is to try to standardize teachers um, to get an effect. So... You know, uh, I'll give you kind of the, the example of things that excite me. Um, there's a company in my portfolio called Prenda Learning, which... Also in our portfolio. Oh, yeah, true, Michael, you got some too. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the, the basically kind of the opposite of that, which is schools are in people's houses like Airbnb. You're a mom and you've got a few kids and you recruit a couple other families and now you've got a classroom of 10 kids in your home uh, and they use the Prenda platform online to go through their academic work. They set their own goals and they do their own kind of uh, digital learning. And what I love about it is it's just a different belief system, really. The belief that student-directed learning, that students will actually figure out better than kind of politicians, what's the most helpful thing for them to learn, which, you know, almost always in education, there's some point in the middle where things are actually right. But I love that people are approaching it from the far extreme of the kids are the only ones that know what they need. So let's start from that point of view. One of the places where John and I totally agree, which is in most places, actually, uh, is that uh, families are going to be increasingly taking matters into their own hands in terms of making sure that their kids are future ready. And if schools are not adapting to keep up the pace, uh, they will look for alternatives that don't look anything like school looks today. Mm -hmm. um, so 
if, 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 if you look at the theory of unbundling, you know, I, I don't know if it was Jim Breyer that, that said this, but it's, it's like all innovation is either unbundling or rebundling. Um, so you, you know, you take a a package of services and value propositions that is delivered clumsily and you peel them off one by one and you say, how can I deliver on this little bitty piece of this puzzle, but deliver on it with less friction at a lower price point with a higher consumer satisfaction. Um, and so that's unbundling. If you assume. Michael, let me jump in there for a second, because I actually think there's a super important kind of aspect of unbundling that's specific to education. One of the things that we've done in education is we always create these bundles that serve the adults well, but don't necessarily serve the kids well. A very good example of that is you look at um, universities with kind of uh, professors and then TAs and you think, well, gosh, we need those professors. They're the smart ones that are gonna provide all the knowledge. And then when you unbundle that, you're like, yeah, we probably need like one of those professors that's good at that thing. And then like, actually you can watch them recorded because in the class, you can't actually ask many questions anyway. So none of this stuff really matters. But those TAs, they were really actually pretty helpful in like studying with other people. So I think one of the things about unbundling in education is it gives us an opportunity to actually figure out where the value to the student was and then emphasize that more than kind of what the system had created for the benefit of the adults. <laughs> that parlays uh, wonderfully into my little theory of unbundling that is in a couple places online. The stuff the internet's going to be uh, pretty disruptive at right now um, is delivering expert content, um, delivering merit signals, uh, and delivering val- valuable interactions with, with others, whether it's peers, TAs, um, instructors, et cetera. Um, and those fit um, pretty well within a, a kind of an unbundled paradigm. How do you serve up expert content? You know, prior to the rise of a pretty convenient online video, the way that you got expert content was you went to school and you sat in a classroom. And like John said, with the rise of Khan Academy and a number of other innovators, uh, Udemy, Coursera, Udacity, et cetera, um, or even actually, I think the biggest disruptor that unfortunately none of us are invested in is YouTube, which I'm pretty sure that like most kids growing up right now think that YouTube is their best instructor. Um, but you take this expert content, then you layer on um, uh, merit signals, uh, which allow them to demonstrate their competency, mastery, or or their progression through competency and mastery. Um, hey, and Michael, you, let me ask you about that. Yeah. This is John. Yeah. Um, I feel like the merit signals are actually the last kind of thing that's keeping the existing system from crumbling. So, sure. you know, if you think about like universities, so what, what, why? Let's not even talk about Stanford, MIT, et cetera. Let's talk about kind of a couple tiers down from that. Like, why do they keep existing? Because, you know, having that bachelor's degree still means a lot to employers, whether or not you actually learned anything. So I'm actually curious, like, I find that the merit signals thing is kind of the most difficult thing to overcome in a way um, for kind of new schools and online schools. Do Do you feel the same or differently? Mm. 
So I actually think it's easier to productize delivering merit signals, whether it's on brilliant.org or Degreed um, or other various platforms where you can track your progress. I mean, even on Duolingo, Duolingo is able to represent my fluency in French, which is very poor, by the way, but it's able to represent my fluency in French like much better than the fact that I, you know, took four French classes in college many, many moons ago. Um, so I actually think in terms of digitizing that product, that's actually become somewhat straightforward. And there are many different uh, service providers that have that kind of offering. I actually think it's, it, it, it comes back to the stories that we tell ourselves as a society. I think that so many parents have raised their kids thinking that their life objective is to get them into the right college and then make sure that they go on and have a bachelor's degree. And so many of the economic studies are so blunt that they just, all they do is show the income differential between those that get a bachelor's degree and those that don't get a bachelor's degree. And they're like, clearly the solution <laughs> to my child's future income potential is that they get a bachelor's degree. But it's just a story that they tell themselves. I don't know how as ed tech investors or ed tech entrepreneurs or even us on this podcast start to whittle away at the story that parents tell themselves. Uh, unfortunately, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and various other media outlets aren't aren't like with the story of like, well, let's dig into what a bachelor's degree actually is and why do we actually want one? And is telling ourselves the story good for our society? Um, yeah. It is interesting, though, Michael, that both Trilogy and Guild basically did jujitsu moves on that, right? So Trilogy used college brands, partners with colleges, and then did basically a coding boot camp um, equivalent within those colleges. And if you ask, like Dan, the, one of the founders, he would say, like, you know, these, these, these colleges have spent hundreds of years building up their brands and we all identify like college equals success. So why fight it? Just use it, um, and market with that college. And, and then, you know, you'll effectively lower your CAC to the point that it makes a ton of sense. Likewise, Guild, you know, with companies, goes to a company and says, hey, you know, your, your employees will stay a lot longer if they get college degrees. And yeah. why does that work? Because people want those college degrees. So there, there are some good jujitsu moves. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I prefer to use the word judo because, you know, you're taking the forces that exist and using them to your advantage. Um, I get in that fight with, with Don all the time. I'm like, Don, <laughs> not jujitsu, yeah. it's judo. We're judo. Okay. I'll use judo from now on, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's the title of this episode. Yeah, judo or jujitsu. Um, no, no, no. I mean, as somebody who uh, you know advised the early uncollege team and was a kind of co-conspirator with Dev Bootcamp, which could have had a trilogy model, uh, I definitely feel like we missed out not playing judo with the existing system. Like sometimes. Yeah. I don't want to say me included, like me doubly so, triply so, are idealistic about how quickly society is going to transform and go to a better model. And uh, sometimes you just got to play judo with what is, as yeah. opposed to uh, think that you're going to reinvent the existing system. You, you know what's interesting is it's, it's far deeper even than like parents want their kids to go to college. We're also used to paying for that in a certain way. So basically like, you know, you go to college, you take out a massive amount of debt and that's all good because college is really valuable and you'll pay it off eventually. And so if that takes you 30 years 
to pay off, like, you know, suck it up. Like that's, that's how it is. And, and you can be fine. And so when you come along with things like income share agreements that Lambda School came along with, they're actually looked at incredibly cynically by society. It's like, oh no, this has got to be yet another way that evil companies are going to enslave children and force them to pay them huge amounts of money over long periods of time. And it's like, no, really, they're way better aligned. You don't get paid unless that person gets a job. Like, but it's a, it's a really hard argument. It's, it's kind of incredible. Uh, yeah, student finance, once you try to in- innovate on it, suddenly becomes this uh, whole uh, uh, world of thorny bushes, um, for sure. Uh, you know, totally. and, and we, we have uh, great organizations like Make School uh and vimo and climb credit that have tried to innovate on this we we like to think that make school is really the first undergraduate bachelor's degree serving program that is fully funded by income share agreements uh as far as we know that's true and vimo is really the first uh income share agreement servicer and and so uh, one of the things that happens with your student debt is then they pass that to an organization that's designed to pester you for the rest of your life to make sure you, you pay that debt. Um, there was no organization like that for income income share agreements. And, and Vimo was started at, by actually one of the three attorneys that designed the first income share agreement. So we felt like he was a good entrepreneur to back. But yeah, it, income share agreements are 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 starting to have a public dialogue that I think is not helpful to the overall innovation that, that could be happening here in terms of aligning, aligning education to outcomes and incomes and, and future prosperity of the individuals who go through that education. Um, and why isn't there more of that? I mean, the, the real reason is that the federal government backs the student, the student loan industry as is. And that existing banks go into student debt um, with ex- extremely low interest rates, understanding that there's no way to default on those interest rates. And, and income share agreements are actually in a legal gray area. Obviously, like for basically in many of the world's major religions, like debt enslavement is like a, a thing that is like against the religious law. It's called usury. And it's actually so so prominent in the Muslim world that there's actually like specifically uh, like uh, Sharia compliant finance laws, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Sharia compliant uh, education finance institutions. So, uh, I mean, it's a huge ethical thing that people are concerned about. And I actually think people are just overreacting to income share agreements because it's a newfangled thing. And because the regulatory environment's not really set up around it, um, the, the government backing doesn't allow, you know, the same kind of securitization, the same kind of guaranteed low interest rates that exist for debt in specific. But if you look at Lambda, if you look at some of make school, some of the other, uh, Kinsey Academy, uh, some of the organizations that are doing these income share agreements, I mean, you don't have to pay if your minimum salary is below a certain threshold. You're basically forgiven the income share agreement until you do make above that threshold. And then you only pay back for a certain limited period, a portion of your income, which in most cases is, you know, somewhere between two and five X what you would have been making otherwise. 
And so um, I, I think the public outcry is a little bit more this kind of 2000 years of history and reaction to indentured servitude than it is in looking at the actual reality of what's happening. Yeah. You know, one, one interesting thing is there's also education, probably like uh, healthcare and a couple other things, because it's always been considered a public good and largely delivered by government, um, or at least financed by government, anything from the private sector is looked at pretty cynically a lot of times. And I think that that makes it that much harder when you're trying to have this conversation. It's like, well, no, you corporate folks must be doing something wrong here because that's what you do. And unfortunately, in higher ed, there were some bad actors in the for-profit colleges that caused a lot of harm. So it's tricky. The whole thing is tricky. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons I like Austin at Lambda so much. I, I feel like he he's going to make tons of mistakes. They're going to screw up a lot of stuff. But like you kind of want somebody that's going to be out front having the conversation and it's going to take a few years is my guess because people are going to have to see, oh, wow, people actually do get jobs. They do pay this back. This seems to work right. Like it'll take a while, but you kind of have to fully engage. So it's it's an aspect of this education sector that's, I think, different than a lot of sectors where you're kind of guilty until proven innocent a little bit as a yeah. as a private sector player and you know that's our job is to prove actually no we're we're trying to do the right thing yeah i'm 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 with you on that and to the extent i've ever had bad press it's it's been because uh somebody with significant misgivings about the private sector just wants to rant on on things you know and and their critique is always valid but i'm like hey i tweeted them i'm like hey if you want to chat i'm here Right. You know, uh, sometimes I'm I'm involved in public policy discussions with think tanks in D.C. And I always say, like, hey, innovating on this space is going to take a whole symphony of innovation. And just because I know how to play the trumpet doesn't mean I disagree with the violin. Like, it's just I know how to support entrepreneurs. I know I know how to bring capital into private markets. That's what I know how to do. It doesn't mean I. Uh, I disagree with what everybody else is doing, you know. Is there is there a world where government gets out of uh, financing uh, the, the student loans or or gets out of sort of, you know, limiting school choice on the K through 12 level? Or, or is there a world in which there is serious change in how government treats education in the next decade or two? I really feel like there are sectors where it's almost already happening. So you look at computer science and I won't give away Lambda's internal numbers, but they're starting to educate a pretty reasonable percentage of all computer science grads in the United States. Like, and in five years, they'll be massively larger than all the universities put together. So I think in these small pockets of like, oh, well, you can educate somebody, then they can get a job and pay you back. Like, it works fantastically well. And, you know, Michael started Deb Bootcamp. He totally understands like why that's true in that sector. The frustration, obviously, is, well, can you apply it to other areas as effectively as coding? And I'd say, like, yet to be seen, right? So, like, I've got an investment in SB Academy uh, that does sales training. I love those guys, and they're getting a ton of salespeople trained. It feels like that's another sector, because it's 
only lightly regulated and they're measured based on whether the people they place are good, like it feels good. Um, but then there are sectors like healthcare where, you know, there's a huge problem with having enough nurses. And I've spent, I'm sure Michael has as well, I've spent probably a man year investigating that space and trying to figure out if, if there's a way to train nurses uh, more effectively online, et cetera, use a Lambda type model. And it's really difficult. It's really difficult because from a regulatory standpoint, clinical hours, there are all kinds of barriers that have kind of been constructed to keep that from being easy. So your question, Eric, like, will that change? My guess is it's going to change in waves, right? It's like, oh, well, look, when you take down some of the walls, you can end up with things like Lambda and SV Academy and make school that can educate a ton of students. Maybe we should do that in other areas and like tear down some walls, but like that stuff's nasty because you've always got these entrenched interests that don't necessarily want those walls to be torn down. So I think like it's hard to know. I just, you yeah. know, as an investor, and, I'm trying to find them. <laughs> and then also, I really loved uh, Obama's quote, which is, you know, before he took office, he thought that politics was like a chess game. Uh, and then he learned it's like a football game. Uh, and basically, like, if you have the ball, you get as far as you can down the field, tackle, nail, you know, crush, <laughs> defeat. And then, like, when you don't have the ball, you're on defense, right? And, and so, you know, the way the U.S. political system is, I feel like we're a little bit subject to who has the ball and how far they're going to push it downfield. Yeah. Uh, and then every once in a while, some sanity leaks, le- leaks into the system. And, and I don't know where the sanity is going to end up on income share agreements and financing upskilling and, you know, retraining yeah. people for jobs. Um, and, and I haven't lost a man year to nursing training, but I'm about to lose a man year to new nursing training. So we can sync up. Yeah. yeah. Good luck, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, what you said before though, Michael, on kind of the corporate upskilling world, like that's probably the best example of something that seems pretty clean where you know it's like okay companies need people that are doing x y and z they don't have them they figured out they can retain people better by doing this as well like that seems like pretty clear rational motivation so i would guess that's going to go a long way yes um higher ed is better in that you have private actors in the universities. They're not run by government, but there's a lot of the stuff we talked about on finance where the government is backing certain kinds of loans and things like that. But it's still better than K-12. K-12 is the one that is brutal because a couple things. One is the system's actually pretty happy the way it is. You know, you would think like, oh my God, you must be in total chaos and want to do better because everybody's beating on you. But like you walk into the average superintendent's office, they'll pay lip service. So yeah, we should really change. But like, look at the things they've done over the last 10 years. Not much. I mean, you know, maybe you painted a building or something. I mean, I don't want to be too cynical, but it's not much. And here's the problem for entrepreneurs, I think, is great. So you got this K-12 system. It kind of sucks. That seems like a good target. Let's go do that. But it's free. So it's free and kind of crappy. Free and crappy turns out to be really hard to compete against, right? Because if you want to be better, you prob- you're either going to be super tricky and figure out how to be free, which people are trying to do. Prenda is for-profit charter schools, which we don't need to talk about, but that's, that's a hard road. 
or you're actually going to charge like one cent or more. And then as we know, human behavior is like, oh, no, no, that's not free. I'm going to do the free crappy one. So I think K-12 is crapped in that a little bit. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm curious broadly where we're going to see innovation that's like totally outside the system, like may, maybe like Prenda or Lambda, like is the future of K-12, like, you know, is like 30% of the country going to go to homeschool or 50%? And then where we're going to see sort of this judo, you know, working with the existing, you know, guild and trilogy, et cetera. Well, there's, there's, yeah. data, there's data that shows that 10% of families today would homeschool if it was easy enough. And right now, 3% are. So, you know, organizations like Prenda, and as John knows, I have an incubated, you know, business plan that I would love to go after on the homeschooling front. Uh, basically, if you could just make it, a, if you could create like the Office Depot easy button for homeschooling, you could 3x the market. You'd go from two and a half million to seven and a half million homeschooling families in the span of a decade. In terms of higher ed, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I, I was on the advisory board of UnCollege. We thought college was going to disappear quickly, like eight years ago. We're still where we are. I have a college president friend who says that colleges are going to close while the, the dorms are full because they're not financially viable. He's been saying that for years. Mark Cuban's been saying that for years. Peter Thiel's been saying that for years. I don't know. I mean, maybe coronavirus takes them all out. I have no idea. I, I would just say, I, I feel like, and I hate saying it because it's, I don't feel it's fair, but I think that when you're competing against free, you probably don't win in a huge way unless you're at least perceived to be free. So for example, like Lambda or Make School, I think it's probably perceived to be free. It may or may not be fair, but like, I'm not paying up front. I understand that I got to pay once I get a job, but shoot, I've got a job, whatever. And I think the same thing is true in K-12, right? So I've got an investment in these guys, Sora schools, these three Georgia Tech grads that are building a high school. And they have this tricky little model where students do work study. That's kind of the point is like figure out what job you want to do. And they do work study. They work for companies. And the school basically acts as an agency, takes that uh, work product, the, the revenue from that, and makes tuition free. So like now you're like working, you're figuring out what do I want to do, and you're not paying anything. So I think things like that are probably going to do a lot better than almost anything else. And I have investments in a lot of other things. But man, in the, in the uh, vocational world, it was unbelievable to see the multiplier effect of going from charging up front to being free in terms of the number of applications and interest and things like that. So free, unfortunately, feels like the deal. Oh, I was just going to say, I think this ties into one of the questions that I had posed, which is, what's the value between specialist VCs and education versus generalist VCs that seem to have all the money? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that question. You can put this in or not, but we, we call generalist VCs tourists. Uh-huh. <laughs> we love when the tourists come to town. They give us money and then they go away and, you know, the world changes and, and they're sad about it sometimes. But, you know, I, I think these things, I don't think it's just education. I think there are several sectors that are really complicated and both from a structural standpoint, but also behavior, you know, parent behavior, student behavior, they're tricky little things. And I think the ideal actually is to have 
a great generalist, especially if you're doing consumer, somebody that does consumer all day long and somebody that really knows a lot about education. And I think luckily, whereas, you know, Michael, several years ago when you guys started Learn, you were probably always the like kind of odd, strange bird. Oh, those are those education guys. Now I see more and more companies that have one of each, kind of an education factor and then uh, generalist VC. And those seem to do fine because at the board level, then you can have the discussion about, no, 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 this, this entrepreneur is not screwing up. Like this is, I, let me tell you about the four other times I've seen exactly this. And like, it can kind of normalize the discussion back yeah. to like what's possible. Yeah, to totally. You know, we've been talking a lot where, where you guys agree. Where, where's uh, one or two things that you uh, have difference of opinions on or, or, or see differently as it relates to the space? That's a great question. Uh, up until recently, it probably would have been the corporate side would have been one of the main ones. Because um, I think, Michael, you guys have done a lot of work on kind of corporate upskilling. And I was like really cynical about it, um, mostly because retention often seems to be the thing. And it's like, okay, you know, retention is one of those things like it's more about the doing of the thing than the quality of the thing sometimes. And so that kind of bugged me. But I actually kind of now feel like that's a world where, yeah, I'm worried about how the quality is going to be, but I love the purity of why companies are doing this. They're very clear. They're trying to retain employees, sometimes train or retrain them. But like, I like that purity relative to almost every other sector. So unfortunately, Eric, I think I'm getting more aligned with Michael on that issue. Do we disagree about anything in homeschool, Michael, or do we agree on everything? I don't know. No, not really. Uh, I guess we have a theoretical disagreement, which feels practical now with, with Prinda, but uh, which is like, at what point do you go after government funding and will government funding kill you uh, as a startup? You know, I had kind of had this theory where like, hey, you can make it look like free to the parents because the government pays the bills. So yep. if you can offer parents free or actually in the state of California, you can even make it more than free. You can make it like, hey, you get a, you get a spending account. You get, you get like a two and a half thousand dollars spending account, yeah. uh, which you can do in California. I'm not sure how many other states you can do it in. So not only is it free, but you get free money. You get paid to go to school. Yeah, you know, but John actually has more experience in in trying to unlock government money for school innovation than I do. Uh, and so I feel like some of his critique is well-founded there. I actually think a more interesting place that we could potentially disagree, which we started to do over text message yesterday, but we have not actually done, which is what difference can you make in your portfolio as an investor? Mm. Right. And Eric, you, you can actually join in the debate because uh, <laughs> you would have a valid opinion on this as well. So what I found out yesterday is that John is currently spending at least one hour per week with all of his portfolio companies per week True. on a weekly check-in basis. True. And the, the old me when I got into VC is like, hell yeah, John. And the... the <laughs> The, the me that has been in VC for eight years is like, whoa, like you poor sap, <laughs> you poor sap. Like, what, where are you moving the needle? Where do you think you're moving the needle? You know, so what what difference can you make 
uh, when you when you're on an executive coaching level with your portfolio, I think that's a more fun place that we could have fun yeah. disagreeing. That's a good that's a good riff. Um, you're right. I actually I think the question though actually is probably more profound, which is like why are we doing this? So, you know, like the obvious answer in venture is we are doing this to maximize our IRR return. And that obviously I do this because I'd like to do that. I also do this because I feel like we really suck at teaching people how to create companies. Like it's kind of like self-study. It's like, oh, just do this. And then somebody says, boy, you're an idiot. Stop doing that. And then you stop doing it. And it's like all the coaching says that direct and immediate feedback by somebody that you trust and care for works a hundred times better than people just slapping you on the hand, right? Um, although, you know, the Catholic nuns really did a good job on the ladder. So maybe they have something there, but like, I just feel like a lot of times, you know, like Eric and I are invested in a little company called Tiny Care that does uh, daycare. And I spent a lot of time with Michael, the founder. And like, you know, I would say like 80% of the time, his instincts are really good. It's just those other 20% is really painful. Like you just go down this path. You're like, dude, don't do that. It's going to be terrible. Go talk to this guy and he'll tell you what he did and why it was bad. And like, I just feel like from a public good standpoint, almost like, or a moral standpoint, like let's keep them from like just getting crushed on a regular basis. I don't know. It's probably just stupid and sappy. You're right. No, that's not it at all. I'm just wondering. You know, it, sound, it sounded a little bit like that book Catcher in the Rye. You know, I just, <laughs> I, just I, I just stand at the edge of the cliff and make sure that kids don't run off the cliff. Right. You know, that's that's my that's my ideal role in life. Right. Just make sure kids <laughs> don't run off the cliff. Now, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a good analogy. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that is what I'm doing. Yeah, no, no. Well, so, I've only been doing it a couple of years and I'm still dumb. And like, you know, you meet me in six years and I'm like, oh yeah, what a sap. Like you've got the experience. So you're probably right. No, well, first of all, when I, when I was a founder CEO, I desperately wanted one of my investors to be as involved as an executive coach as, as you are. And I actually thought about paying for an executive coach, but they wanted four grand a month retainer. By the way, yeah. that's that's what you should price at, John, four grand a month retainer. But anyway, and I like just couldn't justify it. I had raised whatever whatever amount of money, my burn was whatever it was. And I was like, yeah. oh, clearly I shouldn't spend this amount of money on my own executive coaching. I think that was the most expensive decision I ever made was to not spend four grand a month on executive coaching. So if there are any CEOs listening, uh, if you increase your marginal burn by, you know, two and a half to 8% a month to get executive coaching, I think that that's a good thing to do. Yep. But rewinding a little, like, so at Learn Capital, we've honed in on a few areas where we think that we add outstanding value that for better or worse, don't involve week by week calls with, with our executive teams. So one of those is in talent placement. One of those is in strategy check-ins and one of those is in uh, what you might call syndicate building for the next round. Um, and uh, every once in a while, there are also special special situations that require like essentially like network matching where it's like, well, in order to pull this off, 
you know, so when I think about uh, make school, they wanted to get a deliver an accredited bachelor's degree in two years. So they have an immersive engineering program that's two years long and they want to deliver a bachelor's degree. So they needed an accreditation partner and we were able to bring the right people to the table uh, through people that we knew who knew people who knew people um, more effectively than these mid 20 something founders would have been able to pull off the same thing with actually structuring, structuring their income share agreements and bringing capital to the table for their income share agreements. Not that the founders aren't capable, but just sometimes it takes, it takes that network credibility and that large network of bringing somebody to the table who can really make a meaningful difference at the right time on a special project basis. So, you know, we, we found that those three areas, right. So, you know, um, uh, strategic deep dives, uh, talent placement, holding the syndicate together, and then this actual, uh, this other special area of just accessing the network to deal with the special situation at hand, that seems to be where we excel. And, and on the kind of day-to-day executive coaching side, you know, we haven't been able to pull that off in the way that you have, John. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, the, the, you know, the interesting thing is that seed investing as a thing is, what, a decade old now. And so... I think the normal thing we always do is we say, oh, well, seed investing is just kind of like a miniature version of Series A plus investing. So let's do the same thing. And I guess, you know, my feeling after starting three companies was like exactly what you described, Michael, where it's like, my Lord, can somebody help me to think about things before I fuck them up? (laughs) You know, it's like just, Right. It's like this cannot be a good system that I continuously fuck things up and then have people like basically tell me what an idiot I am. That's, that seems wrong to me. So I, I do think like there's another thing about this that's interesting. I don't sit on board. The only board I sit on is Lambda School. And that was not until they were kind of getting pretty late stage, kind of Series BC because I actually think there's a different role, which is not the board member but the kind of counselor friend um, and, you know, whatever. I, I might be a kind of a critical friend, but I'm not their boss. I'm an investor, but I'm not their boss. And I actually think that's important too, because, you know, you talk to most first-time founders, they're more or less scared to death of their board. It's some weird nebulous group of people that can kind of fire them. Like, yeah, they yeah. don't like that. Yeah, so yeah. having somebody you can actually talk to who's like, okay, I'll go talk to John because like he won't like tell on me and like try to get me fired. He will like tell me the truth and try to help me. Like, I just think it's a different role. And I, I feel like seed investors are ideal for that. Cause like, you know, a lot of these companies, I write the first check, I'm sitting with them day one. Like you can build a lot of trust over a period of time. So I don't know. It's just, it, it's probably wrong, right? It's like my tagline. It's, it's probably a stupid thing to do, but it feels like it solves the problem I had when I was a founder. So I like doing it. No, no, no. I think it's the right thing to do too. And this, this adds to another question I wanted to explore with you, which is you said seed investing is only 10 years old, but then where the hell did all the seed investors go? Like They went to where you are, man. They keep getting bigger and leaving. Well, at least we split right. our practice into learn capital, learn start. We That's still have true. a seed fund in the That's ground. True. That's true. But I felt like seed investing was like the hottest thing since sliced bread. And then in the past four years, they all disappeared and so it's now, kind of amazing though. You know, I, I just want to riff on that a little bit. Like, 
this is as true in education as in other sectors, but like, it's amazing to me to watch just our sector with like, you know, maybe four or five kind of main firms that all started as kind of sub hundred million dollar kind of quote seed investors, maybe a little series A, all of which now are kind of moving on and saying, you know, it's really hard for us to write a seed check. We need to do kind of series A plus. So I think what happened to the seed investors, they all just grew up because who the heck wants to do seed? Like he's not very leveraged. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you just like kind of whatever masochistically like doing it. I like it because personally, I like that stage far better. It's kind of also why I don't like sitting on boards. Like I get it. I know what key metrics are. I know what focus is. I know all those things. That was just never the fun part of the job. Yeah. Like the fun part of the job is like, holy crap, I'm going to die. Like, how do I not <laughs> die today? That's cool. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm totally with you on that. That's why that's why I helped Don start Learn Smart within Learn Capital. Because, like, you know, we, we had raised a $150 million third fund. And right now we're, we've already done a first close on a 200 plus, you know, million dollar fourth fund. And, and like we were getting more seed deal flow than ever. And I was like, guys, we're missing all the fun. Like, let's, let's, let's figure <laughs> let's this out. Some more you know? fun things. <laughs> let's do some more fun things. I want to hear more about how everybody's going to die in six months. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I, I want to segue a little bit into re- requests for startups in, in the space. And I'll start with sort of a, a broad question and, and uh, you go from there. One is, are, are we going to see, well, I guess it's three different sub questions. Uh, another Minerva, uh, another alt school, and is there going to be a bunch of like Lambda for every category, whether it's Lambda or a bunch of other schools? John, you have a post about, you know, why aren't there more vocational schools? Right. I mean, I think the answer is yes to all of the above. I, I feel like the, the wisdom, I don't know if it was Mark Andreessen or somebody else who kind of coined this wisdom, but like, basically, like, there aren't very many bad ideas. They're just ideas that happen at the wrong time. And I feel like education is like the poster child for that statement, because we keep trying things and you're like, gosh, that should have worked, but no, it failed. And like, it's just in wave after wave, we keep trying things. And so I think almost all of these things will work. So will there be Lambda for everything? Yes. Will it be now, five years from now, 50 years from now? Who knows? But it seems obviously right that if you don't have to pay up front and you pay back once you get a job, that would be a better way to do kind of job focused training. So I think it'll happen. I'll I'll tell you one, like in the call for startups that I think is just so interesting. In K-12 specifically, let's just assume for the moment, let's hypothesize that it needs to be free. Uh, Prenda went down this route of like, okay, we're going to be free by having the government pay for it. I think that's a hard way to go. I'm supportive of Kelly trying to figure it out, but it's hard. Guild Education went out and said, uh, hey, why don't we get employers to pay for people to go to college? Because then they'll stay with us for longer, they'll retain. Then there were a set of companies that tried to do this for daycare who said, um, hey, why don't you um, pay for your employees' daycare? Because that'll cause them to retain. The problem with daycare is it's horrendously expensive, right? So it's like you're talking about like a $40,000 a year benefit or something. So like that was hard. But with K-12, especially like micro schools and things like that, they're expensive, but they might be, you know, $2,000 a year, $3,000 a year. That's back into that range where Guild kind of proved that 
companies that are willing to pay for college at that price, what would the retention benefits of paying for people to send their kids to K-12 schools that the company was sponsoring and had reserved seats for? I think there's an idea there that could keep things free um, and be corporate paid, which, you know, frankly, I guess as an American, you just have to own it. Like our corporate world takes care of a lot of stuff for us, healthcare and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe we just need to lean into it and say that's one of the ways of getting a free. The, the first book I had to read in college was a book called When Corporations Rule the World. So this is, this is college full circle. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No ISAs for people under 18? If we think we're in a gray area doing income share for people in their mid-20s, you're, you're, we're going super into a gray area there. Uh, I, I, I'm years off away from thinking about that question. So. Yeah. But I also think, I also think, Eric, your 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 question before that we talked a little bit about homeschool and what Michael said about, you know, ten percent of people who are in other schools today would like to homeschool. I think like all the polls, all the surveys I've read show a great dissatisfaction for school and a desire to, um, you know, take more control as parents and get their kids a better education. They're just kind of like not enough choices that seem reasonable to people right now. And so I think that is a true opportunity for entrepreneurs to kind of fly in and and come up with a bunch of solutions and see what sticks. So I'm super optimistic, actually, that despite the fact that um, we have this free crappy system, people can come up with maybe free awesome things or maybe inexpensive awesome things. Like, I feel like there's demand there. It's just very tricky how, how you satisfy it. And so I, I spent a lot of my time, way more than I should really, um, looking at those ideas uh, for an alternative to the K-12 system, building new schools, just because it'd be awesome if it was possible. And is the lesson of old school that you can't do that, that model? I mean, the lesson of old school is Prenda. Old school kind of got part of it right, which was um, make a school smaller. And Prenda said, oh, well, if you're going to make it smaller, why don't you just make it small enough to put in somebody's house and then you have no real estate problem ever again? Like, that's pretty great. Well, uh, you know, I also feel like this relates to a larger challenge in education. Uh, and and I, I, w- I won't call any names at the moment, but Surviving a PR disaster in education is uh, is is less probable than in other spaces, maybe. And you know there are things that you can do that make business sense, like when you're when you're looking at the spreadsheets and you're trying to make rational decisions. Like you know there are things you can do that make business sense, uh, but alarm people. And uh, sometimes uh, you probably shouldn't do that thing that makes business sense if it's going to alarm everybody. I'm not sure if you, if you agree. John, you wrote a post basically saying, um, uh, you know, you don't like companies that sell to schools or it, it's hard to sell to schools, whether it's, it, it's yep. college or, or, or K, K-12. I guess that, that would include companies like Clever or Class Dojo or uh, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, it, it actually doesn't include Class Dojo. So Sam and Class Dojo, I give them huge persistence points because if you, if you take Class Dojo and Remind as two examples, and I'm not going to beat on Remind because they're doing fine, but they're in a very different world than Class Dojo is now, purely because 
Sam at ClassDojo said, you know what? I'm just not going to sell at schools. I just don't want to go down that path. I actually care about kids and parents more than like school administrators. So that like, that's who I want to be my customer and was more or less like, I don't know, mocked is too strong a word, but like kind of written off for, for doing that. And it took them a long time, but then they figured out more or less how to offer these kind of dojo things on top of the core experience that people would pay for. And I'm not going to give away their numbers, but they're pretty good now. Um, and with a lot less friction, I think, than selling the school. So I think although the consumer side of this is much tougher because American parents aren't used to paying for anything um, related to education, I don't think that means to founders, well, then just don't try it. I think- Wait you till you try go to Europe. <laughs> yeah, try to go to yeah, Europe. <laughs> yeah. Or you could go to Asia where, you know- They pay for everything. They're yeah, like, well, education, education costs a third of my income, of course. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think I think the norms I think the norms are different. So, but my basic point on the school sales, and I hate this. I'm sure Michael does too. I bet percent of my inbound decks and pitches are for school sales, and I've come up with a relatively pithy way of saying, "Hey, thanks very much. I just don't invest in that." Um, and it pains me because obviously they're doing good work for students. And no matter what we do, it's going to take a couple generations of students to get everybody into a better system. So it's painful. It's just that those companies with a very small number of exceptions don't generate venture scale returns because the growth rates aren't high enough. Um, so, you know, anyway, go ahead, Michael. Maybe we disagree on this one. Uh, I want to tell a counterexample, and then I want to agree with you. Okay. Yeah, I'll disagree and then agree. You know, so we have a portfolio company called Genius Plaza, uh, which basically sells multicultural, multilingual classrooms in a box, uh, which grew at the pace of the best cons- has been growing at, on on pace with the best consumer ed tech companies. Um, Largely because, strangely, the government passed a lot of laws saying, hey, we need to provide budget and support to help our classrooms become bilingual or multilingual. We need to try to respect uh, different cultures in our classrooms where there are many people uh, coming from different places around the world. Otherwise, we're, we just have totally dysfunctional classrooms. And they approve these budgets and approve these leadership positions over the span of, you know, eight years with really no technology to spend it on. And Genius Plaza showed up and said, we have this cool methodology where we help, uh, we basically help kids reteach other kids in their own language and respective of their own culture through audio files and and hooking them into presentations and and content. And uh, you don't need to have a multilingual teacher or a multicultural teacher. We can just power this for you. And uh, even though it's school and district sales, that took off like a rocket. And yep. it, was, it was because this regulatory system, which sometimes we beat on as innovators, enabled that. And so yep. sometimes yep. it actually works in your favor. Yep. Uh, you True. just kind of have to know the ins and outs of what's out there and what's happening from a regulatory perspective. That's um, true. Wireless generation was the same story where the, all the reading first initiatives made it so you had to assess students in reading, they came out with the product and it went nuts. So 
true. Yeah. If you're super crafty on the regulations, you can make money in that space. In closing here, why don't we close a little bit and just talk about the future of education uh, more broadly and anything that we haven't yet yet spoken about in terms of you know painting a picture a little bit. John, you had a post where you know we're going to unbundle sort of the care, sort of maybe social, emotional, yeah. and, and the academics. Um, you know, in, in college, they talk about unbundling, uh, you know, liberal arts from sort of jobs and, and career stuff. Maybe you can talk about a little bit of that and, or anything else you, you, you want to sort of paint a picture for us when we think about the future of education. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the general thing with education is how do you, uh, all, all of us who've run schools, like the first thing you realize might take you six months, might take you a year is like everything is governed by the ratio of teachers to students. That's just how schools work because almost all your cost is on the teacher side and you're amortizing that cost over some number of students. And so I actually feel like the world lives that out day by day with kind of the future of education because you can go to the extreme and have a MOOC with 100,000 students to one teacher. And then like, actually, that's a pretty great business model. Like that makes a ton of sense. Then the question is, well, but what does a student need to learn that stuff. It's probably not like one one hundred thousand thousandth of that teacher. They need more than that. And so then I think you get to these things like Lambda where it's like, yes, the Google hot shit engineer that's teaching a bunch of kids in the cohort, like it's hard to ask him questions, but you can ask the TA that's working with your group every day and that gives you enough that like you learn something. And so that ratio because the teacher salary, the TA salary is low there, can like work at a lower ratio, which gives you the fit. But like, I actually think that the future of education is largely about like, do we get completely off the ratio? Do we get to just higher ratios that work? Like, it, it all feels like that. It, and you, it really philosophically, I think you either agree that there's something like kind of deeply human about the relationship and the trust that it takes to learn hard things or or not. And I think largely people from out from the outside world come into our space and are like, let's use AI to do X, Y, and Z. And someday, yeah, probably someday huge chunks can be done that way. But it is really true that where we really sit is like, can we unbundle that relationship between students and teachers in a way that like the economics start to work better and you get really good scalability and you can build companies and, and have high quality. That's John, the hard part. John, we should write a blog post together on unbundling instruction. I've been meaning yeah. to write, I've been meaning to write that. And, uh, um, what's it yeah. look like? Is it going to be tutors? Is it going to be, uh, lo- low paid people? Is it- uh, uh, all of the above, you know, it's, it's going to be a symphony, you know, just because I play the trumpet. <laughs> you know, anyway. that kind of thing. Let, let, let's give an example of what doesn't work. That's currently two things that don't work that are currently some of the highest value companies. And don't worry, Michael, I don't got money in Baidu's. I can't remember. You probably I, I don't. I don't. I don't. Okay, good. So I can beat on them. All right. So, um, you know, two companies, Baidu's in India and Oh, you have money in the other one. Okay. Um, don't say the name. Beat, don't say the name. I'll just, I'll just beat on Baiju's then. So like Baiju's is a perfect example of this like kind of um, massive test prep company in India that all the content is basically asynchronous and self-study, which again, awesome ratios, no direct interaction with people and works well. 
And you have everything from that to another company I won't beat on uh, and won't name that does one-on-one tutoring with students, which is great, but it's expensive. Um, And once you do one-on-one, it's hard to change that model because it's a very deep model of, of learning. So I think like one thing I try to work on with founders is just really think about that aspect a lot like what you think that relationship has to be, because they're really hard to change later on, I think. What about continuous education or adult education? Does it have to be always related to, to jobs or is there like, you know, Bernie, uh, sorry, Barry's Bootcamp or Cycle for Learning? Or how, how do you think about that? Well, so I, I've got, I got something to say here, which is uh, I feel like there was, a, there was a meme that came out a while ago that said kind of, you know, the, the, the best team members are T-shaped, right? They have a broad-based knowledge and then they have one area of deep expertise. Uh, I, th- I think pretty much all the hoopla since then has kind of demonstrated that the best people have kind of a standard deviation curve. They have a bell curve and they have one area of deep expertise and they have several areas of deep expertise near that, but not as good as their peak. And, and they're pretty broad-based and can kind of go out there into, into the nether regions of interdisciplinary thinking. And so I think that uh, from, from an upskilling perspective, uh, it's not just about getting people tech skills. It's about getting people a very broad base of skills and also giving them the foundational knowledge that they need to be interdisciplinary thinkers and to participate in our society and culture in a way that maybe they aren't currently but I don't know how you create an ROI on that that you can hook an income share agreement to. Um, but I think that 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 will be present. A kind of, I just uh, met with a company that's doing leadership training at a level that, like, I think I haven't really seen before. Strive Talent, right? And uh, I, I don't, I don't want to say that it's just limited to upskilling. Is just limited to these very narrow kind of T-shaped skills. I, I hope it can be more broader based than that, but it'll probably be wrapped in, we're going to deliver you this particular skill that will help you get a job. Because if you look at, if you read all these alarmist reports by McKinsey and Deloitte and the World Economic Forum and all these guys, it's like, you know, you know, essentially we're looking at tens of millions of people that are going to have to reskill in the next two decades. And we hope we're investing in the the companies that will deliver on on that um, you know massive societal issue that we're going to be having. It is also interesting to see that you know by and large, at least your your companies, Udemy and Coursera, right, have taken very much this upskilling kind of approach, right. I think almost all of them started with the like, let's be on lifelong learning, continuous education, and awesome people will show up and take classes and that'll be good. And they just found the sweet spot was actually companies wanting to train their folks for very specific things and people using that to kind of upskill. And that does make sense to me. I mean, it seems very transactional. It's like, where are the people that just love learning? What's wrong with that? <laughs> well, so it, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, at an event this past weekend, we literally had Udemy and Coursera uh, and and another and Agreed all all talking to a limited audience about about this future of corporate learning and kind of B two B sales and. Um, 
One of the things that they all said is that they benefit from serving both enterprise and consumer customers because essentially if they were locked into only enterprise, uh, they wouldn't be getting real-time feedback from the market as to what skills are in demand. They actually rely on independent content publishers, uh, less so in, the, in Coursera, but they rely on a broad base of, of, of content that's being published and a broad base of users that are trying to hit that and search for it and experience it and review it in order to say, actually, you know, we think that these skill sets are the ones that are in most demand. Hey, company, don't you want to pay for it? Right? Yep. yep. Is, is there a world where we see corporates, instead of, um, instead of funding the education, just like provide it directly, like Amazon University or Walmart University or, I don't know, you know, big scaling companies that need to hire, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people? So when, whenever the time is right for an idea, usually we, we suddenly have a week where like we get like five business plans with that exact same oh, idea. Yeah. Oh, and what I would say is in the past two weeks, I've had five business plans with like internal universities as a service. Um, so you're not wrong. Um, but I, I think that education is such a large space with such, with such a myriad of uh, approaches and, and demand vectors and payers and, you know, subject matter areas that, um, there's, there's, there's not going to be kind of a, a quote, Facebook of education where it's winner take all and everybody else just get the hell out of the way and go be Snapchat and move to LA and try not to die. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think that uh, there will be some really big winners and, and hopefully we've backed a number of those winners. It looks like that to date. Uh, uh, but, you know, just because Udemy and Coursera exist doesn't mean that a company can't have a really powerful internal university. There's no, there's no reason that they couldn't. Totally. Uh, last question for me for real is, is there going to be some version of a, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, games that would make learning math fun. You know, is it going to be like a Fortnite that, that kids just play and they're learning math secretly, or if not Fortnite, at least something like Duolingo, uh, uh and separately, have you seen anything on the assessment, uh, or analytics front? That's really interesting. I, is there like a new SAT that, you know, private company is going to do and is going to be huge or, or, or something like that? I want to, I want to like spin that a different way, which is, Instead of, is there going to be a Fortnite for X, is Fortnite going to be used for education? And Absolutely. I, Double down. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, basically, like, what I love right now is there's an obvious thing, which is where do kids want to be? It'll be on freaking Fortnite and, you know, Roblox and stuff like that. So it's amazing to me that and Michael has an excellent, excellent deal funnel, I know. So he's probably seen more of these. I haven't seen nearly enough people trying to figure out how you use Fortnite and other things as a way of like both helping you get better at Fortnite, but also teaching you some things that we think you might want to learn, like being a leader and, you know, these kind of things. So it's just like, go where the kids are seems obvious, but like, I don't know, everybody comes up with a like, no, no, no. I want to take you off Fortnite. We're going to do this other thing. And the kid's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Actually there was a study and unfortunately at this point it could be apocryphal. I have no idea, but I remember reading it, which is they, they, they did a little randomized control trial and they put kids in one room with a literacy game 
and they put kids in another room with World of Warcraft and a bunch of books on how to get better at World of Warcraft. <laughs> and the, the kids that were playing World of Warcraft and had a bunch of manuals they had to read increased their literacy game better <laughs> than the kids that were playing. Of course. Right. Um, so, so I also agree, like, uh, you know, we, we have made two investments in, in this area, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't see enough entrepreneurs saying, how do we leverage the fact that kids are really motivated playing games to expand their, their base knowledge and skill sets across a number of different factors. Um, uh, and, and we would be excited to see more, more deals like that. In terms of call for deals, I think both of us are looking for the future of nursing. So would be happy to see that. Anybody that can tie a high ROI with a short form program or a short form intervention um, and hook up to either income share agreements or, or different kinds of financing, we'd be excited to see. Um, but generally speaking, Learn Capital is excited to see pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have one more, Eric. Uh, I would love to see somebody figure out how to do what Lambda or SB Academy does for kind of adults with kind of last couple of years of high school students. Um, so, so this idea of breaking the I must go to college uh, thing and saying, gosh, there are a lot of kids sitting in seats right now in their junior and senior year of high school going like, what am I doing again? Like, why am I doing this? And hooking in a, like a really tangible thing they can do to get ready for the world. Like, I think, I think there are ideas there. It has the problems of the ISAs for under 18, lots of crap you have to deal with, but it's interesting to me because there are a lot of kids sitting there. Uh, so another anecdote there re- re- regarding games and, uh, and what you can learn from actually playing games is uh, the company that I built back in the day uh, sold to admissions offices. And I remember talking to the dean of admissions at Yale and I was just kind of making small talk. I was like, hey, you know, what kind of kids are you admitting this year? I don't know. And <laughs> really smart ones, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, but they said that they had let in this kid that didn't have great grades um, because he had, again, used World of Warcraft. And he had led like a multi-thousand person army to take on like the undefeatable enemy of World of Warcraft great. and won. Great. And they were like, that's the kind of kid we want to come to Yale. <laughs> and I was like, really? I don't think, yeah, I don't think many people dropped, know that yet. He probably dropped out six months in, but the good news is he started a company, right? <laughs> totally, totally. It's, it's funny. You know, one of those, Balaji Srinivasan, who's covering coronavirus on Twitter, one of the most controversial tweets he ever had was he said that he, uh, he proposed the idea of having one mandatory year where people, uh, uh, where kids get seed funding to, to start a business. And people just hated it. And I was so surprised why it, it seems like such an innocuous idea, but maybe it's a threat to something else. If people, I don't know, start taking things into their own hands. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we, we need people to play by the rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, uh, this has been a fantastic episode. Uh, if you, uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, um, uh, definitely check out more of uh, John Danner and, and Michael Staten's work. And uh, if you're an entrepreneur working on something interesting, uh, you'd be very lucky to have John and Michael on, on your cap table. We're certainly uh, lucky when we do and excited to work with them more uh, in the space. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, that was really fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.com.
Radio.vc.